God had finished his great and mighty work of creation when he created man in his own image and likeness. He had desired and planned the creation of a being upon whom he could shower all of his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace, a creature in his own likeness who would freely choose to love and to worship and to serve and fellowship with his creator. So God created man. Actually, we found out last week, God created man and woman, male and female, and he blessed them with every kind of physical and spiritual privilege imaginable because they were put into an absolutely ideal, sinless environment. And he also blessed them with responsibility because God knew that in in providing man with assignments, commandments, that man would find purpose for his life and fulfillment and satisfaction. So man was told to multiply himself by way of reproduction. And he was also told to rule over both the earth and the animal kingdom. At the close of God's sixth day of creation work, he surveyed all that he had created. And what did he say? That it was very good. Now we know that this included, because it tells us, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. In Genesis 2.1, it says, all the host of them at the end of that verse. And so what would this include? This would include the angels, right? Heaven and earth and all the host of them. All the host of heaven would include the angels. As well as all of the earth creatures, including man. Everything was very good. On the preceding days of the creation week, God had looked over what he had created, and what did he say? He said it was good, just good, declared it to be good. I mean, good is good, but now when his creation is complete and perfect and everything was made to work in perfect harmony with every other part of the creation, God could declare that everything was exceeding good, which is what the word very means, exceedingly good. So this means that there could have been nothing in all of the universe which was not good, right? Everything in the universe was very good. That included the heavens and all the host of them, the earth and all the host of them. So what must we conclude? That even Lucifer, who we now know as Satan, even Lucifer was good still good at the time of the end of the sixth day of the creation week. If he had already rebelled against God and fallen, then God could not possibly have pronounced that everything in both the heavens and the earth was very good. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in another lesson. But I just want you to think about that fact that Satan had not fallen before man was created. So chapter 1 of Genesis ends with a picture of the whole universe being a place of absolute perfection and beauty and purpose. Everything that God had created during the six days, including man, fulfilled its function. Man who was created, bara, you know the Hebrew word bara, and made 
formed, the word asa in Hebrew, in the image and likeness of God, was able to worship and fellowship and commune with his creator. He was also able to populate the earth. He was able to serve his creator as steward of the earth by subduing, developing, and managing it. And he was able to have dominion over the animals because, of course, God gave him that ability. If he gave him the assignment, he also gave him the ability to do it, just like he does with us, right? If he calls us to do something, he also gives us the ability to do what he has called us to do. So everything was exactly as Almighty God had planned for it to be. Everything was perfect to sustain man on the earth and to provide him with an ideal home. Now, before we continue with our study of Genesis, I want to address two very important subjects which relate to our look at creation, as the creation account as it is presented in uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Since we have just... Well, that's too early, but I'll leave it up there. Since we've just discussed God's creation of man on the sixth day of the creation week, I figured it was a good time for us to insert a discussion about the matter of all the supposed hominid species which have been offered to the world as transitional missing links between the animal kingdom and man. Hominid is a transitional, that's a term for, you know, part ape, part man. All these missing links that have been brought forth to say that we did indeed come from the animals. If the evolutionists are correct, then there should be a chain of descent linking man with the primates. And it should be possible for us to find at least some of these of the chain's links in the fossil record of the Earth's crust. If it took millions of years for evolution, for the evolution of ape to man to occur, then the fossils should surely reveal, right? If it took millions of years, there should surely be in the fossil record of the Earth some of these transitional beings such as you see up here, which bridged the gap between ape and man, between the primates and man. Well, in fact, there have been a number of such missing links which have been presented to the public as supposed proof that men have indeed evolved from the animal kingdom. So what I want to do in this lesson is examine these claims to see if, after all, it's true. If we must put aside the Bible's account of the creation of Adam and Eve as merely being mythological or allegorical. We can't, you know, well, we can't take it seriously. There was not a literal first man named Adam. There was not a literal first woman named Eve. Or... Do we, on the other hand, have nothing at all to fear from the fossil record to refute our belief in the literal interpretation of God's special creation of man made in the image and likeness of himself and not made in the image and likeness of the monkeys? Furthermore, since the evolutionary model also needs billions of years to even 
be remotely acceptable. You know, if they're going to say that we came from some primeval uh, soup from one protozoan to what we are today, they absolutely have to have millions of years, actually billions of years, don't they, to even have that theory be remotely acceptable. We know it couldn't have happened in just a few thousand years. So I want to spend the second part of this lesson presenting some additional supports for a young Earth. Back a few lessons, back in lesson seven, I gave you several supports, and I told you at that time we would be giving additional. Today, Lord willing, we will give you some additional supports for the Earth being a young Earth. Those of us who do take the Bible literally find that the Earth cannot be much older than 10,000 years based on the genealogies which are presented in the Bible that are traced back to Adam. Adam was created on the sixth day of time, right? So Adam is only six days younger than the universe and the earth. So when you think of creationism, you have like basically one age. And the Bible supports an age between 10,000 and 6,000 years. I tend more toward 6,000 years old. Some go as far as 10,000, saying the earth is 10,000 years old. However, evolutionists claim that the universe is about 10 to 15 billion years old. That the earth, see they have, everything is separate to them. The earth is about 4.5 billion years, although there's a lot of fluctuation with these figures, but this is the most common figure that they give. And they say that man, in his modern form, more or less, has, is about, has been on earth about a million years. So if we are able to seriously claim the Bible as being literally accurate, we need to address these contradictory matters, such as ape men. I mean, I could just go right over it and not even mention it, but I think it's important that we talk about ape men, hominids, and that we talk about an ancient earth or a young earth. Sadly, this is the tragic part, many churchgoers have been led to believe that such matters as an ancient earth and ape men have been proven as facts. And without investigating for themselves, they have allowed the foundation of the whole gospel message just to be pulled out right from under them. Because this is foundational stuff. This is important. This tells us, can we depend on the Bible or can't we? If there was no literal Adam, excuse me, then the Lord Jesus Christ... We don't need him either, the second Adam, because if there was no first Adam who actually literally fell into sin, why do we need a second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, to redeem us from sin, which, you know, the sin nature we supposedly inherited from Adam. If we don't have that sin nature because there was no Adam, then we don't need the, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. So it's critical for Christians to know that they can stand firm on the word of God. We do not need to feel pressurized by those who would tell us that it is quote-unquote fact. And you'll hear this. I mean, every time you turn on the television, you hear it on some kind of program, that, that the earth is billions of years old. Your children are fed this information all the time in their cartoons and the things that they watch on TV. 
And if you go to a museum with your children and hear the the man who takes you around or the woman, you're going to hear about everything being billions of years old. And so we don't need to be pressurized by this kind of stuff because it really, there's a lot that I want to present this morning that will tell us that this is just not true. And we don't need to also, we don't need to succumb to those who would tell us that it is fact that that we evolved from the primates, that we came from the monkeys. And so, therefore, the Bible's account of the creation of Adam and Eve is wrong. We just have to take it as a myth or allegory. These things are not facts at all, the ape men and the ancient earth. They can only, at the most, be categorized as speculation. Nobody can prove it. It's speculation, and actually it's unbiblical speculation, and it's even unscientific speculation. So in this lesson, we're going to first of all examine the evidence which has been used to support the evolutionary theory that humans have descended from animals by considering some of the most famous missing links which have been presented to the public. And secondly, we're going to consider some of the factors which support the biblical record for a young earth, young, you know, relative to what the evolutionists would tell us. So let's begin by talking about the ape men. We're going to analyze some of these ape men. Evolutionists believe that men and apes evolved from some common unknown ancestor from the animal kingdom some 30 to 70 million years ago. Now, I've read a lot of different articles on what animal they think that the monkeys came from and then, you know, we supposedly came from the monkeys. And I've even read some crazy articles that said we, that the monkeys came from the squirrels. So, you know, maybe even you're kind of squirrely. <laughs> On the other hand, creationists believe the Bible's account of the, or, the origin of man, the account that we've been studying, that man was supernaturally created by God himself about 6,000 years ago and that he was completely distinct from the animals because he was made in the image and likeness of God himself. Now, unfortunately, as I've mentioned, there are many museum exhibits. You've all been to them, haven't you? And there are many textbooks, which I was fed all because I went to public school and then to a state university, and that's all I ever saw. All these kinds of things that are spread throughout the world, which presumptuously claim human evolution as fact. Although there is no direct fossil evidence of man's supposed relationship to the ape. If man has evolved from ape-like animals, then, as I said earlier, the fossil record would surely provide us with some of these transitional links, these missing links between ape and man. Now, numerous so-called ape men have been As you well know, they have been presented to the public as supposed evidence, proof of man's ancestry, back to the animals. But what the vast majority of people do not know, they are never told, is the truth about these missing links. We need to know the truth about the supposed ape men, which have been used to misguide so many people. 
from thinking that they can take the Bible's account seriously. Many, many people in the last 150 years have left the church and have, have left the Bible because of evolutionism and this theory that we came from the animals. So we need to know that there is not one single, listen to me, not one single unquestionable evidence of a missing link between man and apes in existence. So what I want to do, let's look at some of these that have present, been presented to us from the world, from the evolutionists. Ramapithecus was once widely represented as one of the hominid creatures, the ape-men creatures, from which man eventually evolved. He was one of the earliest ones, they say. And the skills and the imaginations of artists, such as whoever drew this picture, were used to prom promote this idea because Ramapithecus is all, always illustrated as walking around almost as upright as man. You know, a little bit hunched over, but almost as upright as we are. The drawings were based, where did they get the ideas for these pictures? Well, they got it merely from a, an upper and a lower jaw and a handful of teeth. Obviously, then, the artists who drew a picture of what this creature looked like had to use quite a bit of evolutionary imagination, didn't they? It'd be hard to know what somebody looked like, what something looked like just from jaws and teeth. The fact is that today, most evolutionary experts admit that the pictures of Ramapithecus were very misleading because Ramapithecus was merely an extinct ape. They admit this very similar to the modern-day orangutan. You can go to the zoo and look at an orangutan, and you'd get a very good idea of what Ramapithecus was like. It has been demonstrated that an Ethiopian species of baboon has the same dental and, and uh, jaw characteristics of Ramapithecus. Probably one of the best-known candidates for the missing link between ape and man is Australopithecus, who was another African ape like Ramapithecus. The brains of Australopithecines were about one-third as large as that of modern man, and their stature was only about four feet tall. However, after years of studying all of the Australopithecines Australopithecine evidence, it has also been discovered that they were just another variety of an extinct ape. Uh, Dr. Charles Oxnard, who's an evolutionist, did a number of very precise measurements on the Australopithecine. I'm going to get my tongue off on this guy, <laughs> on all his, on the bones that they had, and he came to the conclusion that the Australopithecines are not hominids. In other words, they're not transitions between apes and men. And they have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the ancestry of man. Now, this is coming from a respected evolutionist. And so they, too, were merely an extinct form of ape. Richard E. Leakey, who is the son of the very famous Dr. Louis Leakey and Mary Leakey, who, you know, did a lot of... Um, 
They were archaeologists who did a lot of digging over in Africa, and uh, this is their son. He has published evidence that the Australopithecines were long-armed, short-legged knuckle walkers similar to apes living in Africa. And he is not a creationist. He is an evolutionist. After a number of examinations, Sir Solly Zuckerman, who is another evolutionist, has determined that the Australopithecine link is based on speculation only and not on hard facts. Lord Zuckerman said that the, this is a quote, the Australopithecine skull is so overwhelmingly simian, which means ape, as opposed to human, that the contrary proposition would be equated to an assertion that black is white. In other words, this well-known evolutionist is saying this is so obviously an ape and not a man that it's ridiculous to think otherwise. Then there is, was another transitional form called Homo habilis, was once declared to be a link between the Australopithecines and Homo erectus, some of these other guys. And he is now also concluded by the evolutionists themselves to be just another Australopithecine, which is similar to a small chimpanzee or an orangutan, again. So the evolutionists themselves admit that these first three guys were nothing but apes or monkeys. Now, another widely publicized hominid missing link, and this one you probably have heard of, maybe these guys you haven't, but P. Kingman. How many of you have heard of him? P. Kingman. He was designated as Synanthropos Pekinenis. I could say that one because it's Greek. <laughs> now, the evidence found in the 1920s and the 1930s in a limestone cliff over in Peking, China, the evidence for this missing link included skulls, which were mostly fragments of skulls, not complete skulls, and again, a handful of teeth with almost no limb bones at all, you know, no legs, arms, that sort of thing. Only five skulls, in fact, were complete enough for them to determine the brain capacity of Peking man. And all of the original these original skull fragments and teeth were somehow or another mysteriously lost during World War II. They disappeared. Nobody yet knows what happened to them, but they disappeared between the years 1941 and 1945, and they have never been recovered. So the only evidence which exists today for P. King Man, which you can open up your encyclopedias and read about him still, is some casts you know, that they made of the, those original broken fragments of skulls, and they do have two teeth. That's all that's, that they have. What few people know about Peking man is that, first of all, true human beings like you and I, who had been mining limestone, were also found at the site where Peking man was discovered. Now, what does that do to the fact that he's a missing link? I mean, you know, if it cannot, he cannot be a transition to man if he is found with man, because that means man is already on the scene, okay? But that is not included, and this is deliberate deception. I mean, I went to my World Book Encyclopedia, and he's in there, and none of this is mentioned. Deliberate 
deception. They don't tell us about the remains of the ten humans, the, the skeletons of the ten humans who were found with Peking man who also left tools. They, they found tools, and they found out that these humans built fires. They were all, all this evidence was found at the same site. Secondly, um, this is another thing that we're not told, almost all modern experts agree that Peking man had been killed and eaten by those human beings. Each skull that they had had been bashed inward in such a way that it would allow the brain to be removed. And uh, since there were no bodies found with these skulls, the circumstantial evidence points to the reasonable theory that the human hunters, these ancient Chinese people, brought these severed ape heads back to their mining site to cook the skulls and then take out the brains for food. Here's what researcher Malcolm Bowden says, quote, when these men went out on forays into the forest to find meat, they would kill antelope, deer, and whatever else there was. They would cut out the meat and throw the remains into their fire. Now, if they caught a monkey, monkey's meat is too tough to eat. So they would lop off its head, bring it back, and cook it. When it was cooked, they would smash open the skull to get at the brains inside, which were a delicacy. And they still are in some parts of the world, by the way. Monkey brains. Yeah. And then they would toss the broken pieces of skull on the fire, mixed up with the other animal bones, which is where they were found back in the 1920s. And perhaps only several hundred years later, the experts came along and found these bones of apes, and they put them together in a reconstruction and claimed that they had found another missing link, which they named Peking Man, end of quote. So very likely, then, Peking man is simply an extinct type of ape, ape which was once hunted and eaten in China by human beings. And even if he wasn't hunted and eaten, human beings were found right there with him. So that eliminates him as a missing link. Now, Java man, probably another one that you have heard of, and that's his official name up there, Pithecanthropus erectus, Java man, yet another supposed missing link between apes and man, was pieced together again on very little evidence. A fragment of a left thigh bone, not even the whole thigh bone, but a fragment, a skull cap, you know, just the top of the skull, and three molar teeth. The skull cap and the three teeth, now listen to this, they were discovered in 1891 by a medical doctor and a fervent evolutionist named Ed, uh, Eugene Dubois, who had gone to the island of Java specifically to be the one who would discover the missing link. Now, the thigh bone, the fragment of the thigh bone, was actually found a year later, 1892. One year later, the thigh bone was found, and it was 46 feet away from the skull cap and the teeth. For 30 years, 30 long years, Dubois concealed the fact that he had found in the same site 
archaeological site, the skulls of human beings, right near his Java man and at the same level in the sedimentary rock. Actually, I think it was a riverbed where he found them. So he deceived people too because he wanted to be the one to find the missing link. He even, at least he has this good for him, before he died, he reversed his opinion about his discovery and his final conclusion was what he had found was simply the remains of some sort of a gibbon. You know, a gibbon is a monkey. However, here's where the tragedy comes in. The evolutionary experts went on even knowing all these facts, they went on to tell the public that Java Ape Man lived some 750,000 years ago. I remember in college that I learned about Java Man, and this was long after he had been eliminated as a, a missing link. And they know now, later research has proven that the thigh bone, which they found, you know, a year later, actually is identical to the thigh bones of modern human beings. And one of the molar teeth is definitely human. And the other two, the other two molar teeth belonged to an orangutan. The skull cap appears to have belonged to a large ape. Now remember that all these pieces were found about 46 feet from one another. Have you ever known a human being to be 46 feet long? So, I mean, they're just finding pieces from different animals and putting them together and claiming that it was a missing link, or this man was. The respected Professor Virchow of Berlin has said about the Java man discovery this, quote, there is no evidence at all that these bones were part of the same creature, end of quote. And I'm, I'm quoting you from evolutionists. You know, I'm not quoting you from creationists here. Now, by the way, another pithecanthropus was found in Java, same island, in 1926, and he was likewise back at that time hailed as a great breakthrough in the evolutionary quest for proof of ape men. Now, this second Java man uh, consisted, the evidence for him consisted, I don't have a picture of this, of a single bone, a knee bone. Can you imagine? The artists just have great fun. They find a knee bone, and they say, oh, we've, we have a great breakthrough. We have found proof that there is a missing link between apes and men. Well, this knee bone turned out to be the knee bone of an extinct elephant. And so much, so much again for the experts. In 1912, the remains of Piltdown Man were discovered by an amateur fossilologist named Charles Dawson. Mr. Dawson produced some bones, some teeth, and primitive implements, you know, tools, which he said he had found in a gravel pit in Piltdown, Sussex, England. These specimens were then taken to Dr. Arthur Smith Woodward, who was an eminent paleontologist, you know, one who studies fossils, at the British Museum back in those days. So anthrop and he, he said, yes, this is definitely um, a missing link. So anthropologists proceeded then to declare to the world that Piltdown Man was about 500,000 years old 
and a flood of literature then hit the market, hit the bookshelves, which hailed this as great proof of the evolution of man, kilt down man. And over 500 doctoral dissertations, you know, men who are working on their doctorate, 500 doctoral dissertations were written about this wonderful discovery of Piltdown Man. And museums went ahead and they added Piltdown Man to their displays. You know, you've seen the displays of uh, man's evolutionary progress from the animals. Well, everything remained fine and dandy, fine and dandy, until about October, somewhere in October of 1956. Now, this Piltdown Man was discovered when? 1912. And it wasn't until 1956 when the entire issue of Piltdown Man became a sudden total embarrassment for the evolutionists because the Piltdown man bones that had been and the teeth were found to be a total hoax total hoax although you can still read about Piltdown man in the books still hasn't you know the textbooks the kids have in school might even include and probably it's, it's such a shame that they, they do this but they're trying desperately to convince us that we came from the monkeys Critical investigation found that the jawbone actually belonged to an ape which had only died 50 years before it had been discovered in 1912. The teeth had been purposely filed down. Someone had taken a file and filed them down, and then both the teeth and the bones were intentionally discolored with bichromate of potash in order to make them uh, look old very old and to conceal their their true identity. So Piltdown Man had been built on a total deception, a deception which completely fooled the supposed experts. They were tricked by this. They were fooled by it as well. The tragedy is that they haven't corrected things. You know, the encyclopedias in the museums, they haven't corrected it. So once again, we see that the testimony of the experts is, you know, not without reason to be questioned. We should question these experts after they have such a track record as this. The ease which, with, with which this fraud tricked the world's greatest evolutionary authorities illustrates to us the powerful influence of preconceived ideas. See, if you have this preconceived idea that, yes, we did come from the monkeys, and so you're digging around in the ground and you find something, then your preconceived idea makes you very easily biased to say, oh, this is a transitional form. But what we really see is how fitting the words of the Apostle Paul are in Romans 1.22, where he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. At the turn of the 20th century, Neanderthal man, now how many of you have heard of him? I know you've heard of him. Neanderthal man was first discovered in a cave in the Neanderthal Valley of Dusseldorf, Germany. And he was portrayed as a subhuman missing link who was uh, semi-erect, you know, still a little bit hunched over, 
barrel-chested, big chest on him, brutish and very strongly built. You all have that picture of him in your mind, don't you? Neanderthal man. Hmm. And museums and textbooks, again, promoted him in, in just that way, as this brutish kind of a man, saying that he existed about 100,000 years ago. However, with the discovery of other Neanderthal skeletons, it has become known that Neanderthal man was fully erect. It wasn't just partially. He was fully erect, and guess what else he was? Fully human. <laughs> and actually, he had a cranial capacity which exceeds modern man by 13%. He was not only 100% human, he was better than we are. <laughs> His brain was bigger. Are we evolving? No, we're devolving. The second law of thermodynamics is in effect. The misconceptions about Neanderthal man were based on two factors. First of all, the particular first individual who was discovered was um, crippled. He was crippled with rickets, and the poor guy had osteoarthritis. And so it left disfigurement in his bones. Secondly, there was the bias, again, of the preconceived artists who were guided by their evolutionary imaginations. And they have produced all kinds of missing links by determining posture. You know, they don't have much to go by if you just have a couple of bones or a tooth or something. So it's the artist who determines the posture, um, the expression on the face. Look at that expression. What's that say to you? Looks kind of dumb, doesn't he? <laughs> they determine the stature. They, they determine the hairiness, you know, how much hair is on the body and all kinds of things. And all this just based on a few fossil fragments. In spite of the millions of dollars of... Uh, which has been spent in research, it is said that all the bones of the most important supposed ape men, all the bones that they've been collecting over the last 150 years, could easily be placed on a single table or into a single coffin. Now, speaking about the artist's imagination, it is impossible, for example, to tell how hairy a person is just based on some, you know, fragments of bones or a tooth. Could you tell how hairy somebody was by looking at their tooth? I mean, that's ridiculous. And yet most of the illustrations which have been made of the Neanderthal man picture him covered with long body hair. Even a complete skull, if you had a whole skull of a person, would not tell you how much fat is under the skin. It wouldn't tell you um, the shape of the nose. It wouldn't tell you what the eyes look like, the lips, or the ears. And yet these are the very features which make such a, a major difference in appearances. So this, you know, a lot of this is totally the artists and the, and the, um, the drawings that they have made. You know, like we showed at the beginning, when they if they show a little guy kind of hunched over and he looks monkeyish, and then they go up the scale like that, and you look at that, you say, yeah, that makes sense, that looks right, don't you? I mean, it does look like it kind of makes sense, but it's just the artist's imaginations. Well, at any rate, today it is acknowledged by all, by all, 
that Neanderthals were definitely not the ancestors of humans. Neanderthal man is classified today as Homo sapien. What are you classified as? Homo sapien, completely human. In fact, the Neanderthal men were very similar to Northwest Europeans today. Now, one of the most embarrassing so-called missing links for the evolutionists, in addition to Piltdown Man, is the Nebraska Man. This was one which was discovered by Harold Cook in 1922 in Nebraska. Here's one that came from the United States. Another tremendous deluge of, of literature was built around this supposed ape man who was alleged to have lived on the earth a million years ago, one million years ago. Various leading evolutionists, including the eminent Henry Osborne, publicized that Nebraska man was indeed finally a genuine missing link. In fact, the evidence for Nebraska man was used against creationism at the famous Scopes trial in 1925, you know, the Scopes Monkey Trial, which was held in Dayton, Tennessee. It was used as evidence by the leading evolutionary scientists of that day that man did indeed evolve from the monkeys. And William Jennings Bryant, who was on the side of the Bible and creationism, was scoffed and he was laughed at. Oops when he attempted to protest such scanty evidence which was brought forth to supposedly prove that the Bible's of, uh, account of creationism is false and that evolution needed to be taught at that point along with creationism. Now we're just trying to get a, a creationism taught along with evolutionism. So they made fun of William Jennings Bryan, the good guy, for saying, well, that's not enough evidence to prove that we came from the monkeys. Well, just what was the evidence that was presented at this famous trial for Nebraska man? What was the great find, the uh, uh, fossil find, which convinced the evolutionary scientists of this ape man's existence some one million years ago? What was it which was used at this very famous trial which has been responsible for replacing creationism, creationism with evolutionism in our public school system, in our, institu our institutes of higher learning. What was this evidence? What was it that the artists used to vividly construct their drawings of hairy, apish-looking men and women called Nebraska Man? Well, would you like to know what the evidence was? It was a single tooth. A single tooth. I'm not, I mean, this sounds like fairy tales, but it's true. This was used at that famous Scopes trial. It makes my heart break. It just does to think our children have been deceived by all this stuff for years in school and how many have been led down the road of destruction because they've been fed this garbage and they believe it's true because the experts have told them. And the experts haven't gotten it out of the textbooks and out of the museums and out of the encyclopedias. It's sad. It's really sad. Well, this tooth was found in Nebraska along with a few tools. 
You know, so they say, well, this is an ape man who used tools. However, years later, more fossils were unearthed in the very same location as that original tooth, and it was discovered that the tooth did not belong to an animal like man or even to an ape. The tooth belonged to a type of wild pig, which yet lives today in Paraguay. So this was a case where a pig made a monkey out of an evolutionist. And needless to say, there was very, very little publicity given to this discovered error. Do you think this hit the, the radio and television and the media, the newspapers? Oh, Nebraska man has been found to be a phony. It came from a wild pig. No, you'd have to read fine print somewhere down in a footnote to discover about it. Well, a similar discovery was likewise based on a single tooth. It also received very little publicity, of course. And this was regarding the Southwest Colorado man. And he has been discovered to have actually been a horse. That tooth for Southwest Colorado man came from a horse. You see, that you give the evolutionists a tooth... And, you know, not necessarily even a human tooth. It can be, belong to a pig or it can belong to a horse. And their vivid imaginations have gone to work creating an entire race of prehistoric man. Is it absurd? It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's, it's awful, but people believe it. So this is a real lesson. This should be a real lesson for all of us to realize that the supposed experts are not quite so expert after all, are they? And it's a whole lot safer to trust in the true expert, isn't it? The creator himself and his account of the creation of man. By the way, there was I don't have time to go over all of these, but Cro-Magnon man, I'm sure he's another one that you... Um, have heard about. He has been found to that also his cranial capacity was greater than ours today, and that if he were alive today and you put a business suit on him, you wouldn't know him apart from any man on earth. He was fully 100% man. There really is, just take my word for it, I don't have time to go through every one of these, but there really is no evidence that man is evolving or that he has evolved. However, there is increasing evidence from the fossil record itself, the more they dig, and from archaeology, that suggests that human beings and all of the extinct apes lived at the same time, side by side, as far back as they can go. There was always man, there was always apes living at the same time. Dr. Wilbert Roosh, who is prof Professor Amara Emeritus, excuse me, Professor Emeritus of Biology and Geology and the former head of the Science and Mathematics Division of Concordia College, has studied this issue of man and ape, you know, living parallel all the way back. He studied it for many, many years, and here's what he says, quote, As we find more fossils, we find man consistently appearing parallel same time with all of his supposed ancestors. The concept of man developing from these animals is simply very dubious, doubtful. 
and cannot be held. Instead, we have parallel development, a record of man consistently existing as far back as we can go in the fossil record. That's all I'm going to say about analyzing the ape men. If you want to investigate more, I think I've got all kinds of books and all kinds of literature that I have included in your notes so you can do your own research on this and see that what I'm telling you is the truth. But if you go to the secular books, you won't find it because I, we're being purposely deceived by the evolutionists. You know why? Because they love their sin. And they do not want to believe the Bible because if the Bible is true, we are accountable to a holy and a righteous God. And we are sinful. And if we don't do something about it by believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're doomed to hell. That's the message that they will not accept on any terms. They'd rather believe that we came from the squirrels. Well, another issue, which I'm really going to have to rush through, is the issue of the age of the earth. We're going to earth, uh, analyze the earth's age. And we did mention this back in Lesson 7, a couple things about space dust, and I can't remember the other example we talked about back then. But the most common view held today, because of the prevalent teaching of evolutionism is that the earth, as I said earlier, is about 4.5 billion years old and that men and apes diverged from that unknown common ancestor about 30 to 70 million years ago while true man has only been on the scene for about 1 million years. Now evolution, as we said also, demands such lengths in time to make their theory seem even um, plausible. I should put that one up there. They need all these millions and billions of years to, to make people say, oh, well, yeah, I guess if you give it that much time, this could have happened. So they can't just say all these things happened in a short period of time. They have to have many, many millions of years and billions. However, the fact of the matter is that even 30 billion years, 30 billion would not be enough time for chance evolution of even the most simple living molecule, much less for the evolution of amoeba to man. Give them 30 billion years. We've discussed this in previous lessons. They still wouldn't have enough time for chance and mutations to take an amoeba and turn him into a man. Well, since the Bible also contains genealogies which carry us from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to who? To Adam, allowing for there are a few places where they're not quite sure. They have a little question about um, some of the time frames in the genealogical record. That's why it fluctuates between 10,000 and 6,000 years. But it is clear from the biblical record that the earth and man can be no older than 10,000 years at the most. The oldest this earth can be, if you believe the Bible, is 10,000 years. And it can even be as young as 6,000 years. And of course, if we're talking about the earth being 6,000 years, this also includes man, because man is only six days younger, five days younger than the earth and the universe all the same time. So, although their um, belief in an ancient earth has become so vastly widespread and accepted in our culture, our modern culture, yet did you know that there are actually more valid scientific reasons or reasons to believe the scripture than there are to believe in the um, 
ancient earth. There's more reasons to believe that this earth is young. One thing, however, we do need to understand is that the study of origins is really beyond the scope of science. The very essence of the scientific method is based on observation, right? You know, they're always observing things, whether it's through telescopes or microscopes, and also through experimentation. That's the whole approach of science. And both of those are impossible to do with regard to the origin of the universe. Scientists can speculate about the past, and they can speculate about the future, but they can only observe the present, and they can only experiment with the present, right? So evolutionism, and this is also true of creationism, can only really correctly be labeled as a belief can't be labeled as fact scientifically, either one. To say that evolution is an established fact of science is totally, totally false. The study of origins goes beyond the scope of the scientific method. So it is impossible to prove that the earth is billions of years old. Regardless of what they tell you, it's impossible for them to prove it. Now, I'm not going to take the time here to demonstrate the unreliable and dubious nature of all their radiometric dating techniques, you know, when they they try to date fossils and they, they date various layers in the Earth's crust and all that. Um, I'm not going to take the time to develop that. The books that I give to you, if you really want to dig, you can research that. But I'll just give you a few examples of what they have produced, these dating methods. Living snails, alive snails, have been dated um, as being 2,300 years old by, by way of the carbon-14 dating method. Now, they were, they were alive, and they tested them with the carbon-14 and said that they, it came out 2,300 years old. Ridiculous. Wood, which was taken from growing trees, has been said to be 10,000 years old by the carbon-14 dating method. Lava flows from, you know, a volcano. Lava flows, which are known as fact to be less than 200 years old, have been dated by the potassium-argon method as being up to 3 million years old. So, and I could give you on and on, I could give you all kinds of examples. Again, there is a great deal of unreliability with these dating methods. So there is no valid scientific reason for placing any confidence in them. However, there are other processes which can be used to measure time and age and therefore date the age of the Earth. There has been a significant amount of research accumulated which suggests that our Earth and our solar system are not as ancient as the evolutionists would tell us. Now, I don't have time to mention all of them or develop all of them, so I'm going to pick a few here, and I'm going to skip some, but they are the ones I've, I wanted to mention are all in your notes. Um, let's take one here is the fact that the Earth is surrounded by an invisible magnetic force, and the strength of this magnetic force has been measured for over a century. It's this magnetic force, you know, that if you had a compass that would make the the needle point north, toward the North Pole. 
Well, like all of nature's forces, the energy in the magnetic field is decreasing in its strength. Everything is decreasing, right? Due to the second law of thermodynamics. Well, in an important recent study, Dr. Thomas Barnes, who's a physicist who has studied this uh, magnetic field for years, he has shown that the strength of the Earth's magnetic field is decaying exponentially at a rate corresponding to a half-life of 830 to 1,400 years. Well, what this means is that 830 to 1,400 years ago, the magnetic field around the Earth was twice as strong as it is today. And then if you went back another 830 to 1,400 years prior to that, it would have been four times as strong as it is today, and so on and so on. Now, if you go back as far as 10,000 years, we find that the Earth would have had a magnetic field which was, would be equal to that of a magnetic star. And that is not only very highly improbable, it's also virtually impossible. So based on the present decay rate of the Earth's magnetic field, the Earth cannot be older than 10,000 years. It would be very difficult to explain how the Earth could have maintained its magnetic field for billions and billions of years. You couldn't explain that. Furthermore, it is believed that the Earth's magnetic field is caused by circulating electric currents in its core, in the core of the Earth. And if we would go back, let's say, 20,000 years ago, the estimated heat which would have been produced by those currents in the Earth's core would have literally melted the entire Earth. Do you understand the problem? That's only 20,000 years ago. So the testimony of the Earth's magnetic field strongly favors a relatively young Earth, an Earth which can't be over 10,000 years old. Well, another process which speaks of a young Earth has to do with the escaping moon. Due to a number of factors such as tidal friction, the rotational speed of the Earth is constantly, what do you think, slowing down. And this provides us with evidence which limits the age of the moon to, at the most, one billion years. Okay? Well, that's at least 80% younger than the evolutionists say. They say that it's about 4.5 billion years old. Furthermore, the slowing Earth, as we're slowing down, we are transferring our energy to the moon. And this results in a constant yearly increase in the distance between the Earth and the moon. I know this is a lot of scientific stuff. It's in your notes, and you can read it over. But... They know that the moon is slowly, very, you know, very slowly, but it's, it's getting further and further away from the Earth. Although the deceleration is slowing, it can still be measured. They can measure it. Now, if we go back in time, the moon comes into contact with the Earth in a relatively short period of time. 
at least compared to the great age which is suggested by the evolutionists. Yet, there is no evidence that the moon was ever extremely close to the Earth. Actually, if the moon was any closer to the Earth than a distance of 11,500 miles, the Earth's tidal forces would literally break the moon into all kinds of little pieces which would orbit the Earth very much like the rings of Saturn. So the, the moon couldn't have been that much closer you know, and billions of years ago, it would have brought it so close that it would have just exploded, especially if you go back four or five billion years. It, there would be no moon today. We'd have a ring around us just like Saturn. So there's no support for an age of four or more billion years for the moon. Also, if the Earth is billions of years old and it has been slowing down uniformly in its rotational speed, then its present rotation should now be zero. But we know, of course, that we're still rotating on our axis, and we are doing so at a speed of 1,000 miles an hour. So the obvious conclusion is that the Earth cannot be billions of years old. If it was, we wouldn't be spinning anymore. We would have slowed down so much that we would not be spinning. Also, if we go backward for seven, several billion years, the centrifugal force would have been so great. You know, you figure at one point the Earth was spun, all right? Well, way back, if you go back billions of years, the Earth would be spinning so fast based on what it's doing today, because things are slowing down, that it literally would have brought all the continents to the equator, and the Earth would not be the shape of a sphere, it would be the shape of a flattened pancake. So it's impossible to go back billions of years. Now, another great evidence it has to do with a very small amount of helium, which we have in our atmosphere. Didn't have a picture, but there it is there on, on that transparency. Talks about it. Former Nobel Prize nominee Dr. Melvin Cook has studied, studied the Earth's natural helium supply extensively, and he eventually became convinced that the reason there is so little helium in our atmosphere is because the Earth is relatively young. I won't get into that. I'll let you read the rest about that, so let me get on to another. Just read about helium. The fact that there's so little of it in our atmosphere shows that we have to be young. Um, also, the sun is shrinking. Due to its own self-consumption, the sun is smaller than it once was. Now, if the shrinkage rate, rate of the sun could be accurately measured. They have a difficult time measuring it, as you can imagine. Um, if it could be measured, and if enough solar data could be accumulated, they're doing some research on it, it could be used to estimate the age of the sun. How fast the sun is shrinking and how much the rate of shrink shrinkage has varied over the centuries are factors which cannot be calculated with conclusive assurance but they have an idea, but they can't be positive. However, even if you take a very conservative rate, you know, give the evolutionists the benefit of the doubt, take a conservative rate, there is still a serious problem for those who believe that the Earth and the Sun are billions of years old. Why? Well, because it can be shown that for 99.8% 
of the Earth's supposed existence, if it is 4.5 billion years, for 99.8% of that time, it would have been too hot here on Earth for life to exist. Well, it would be too hot for the Earth to exist, actually, because of the sun's greater size. You know, if you go back billions of years and the sun, they know the sun is shrinking, the sun would have been so big and so hot that actually the Earth, there could be no life on Earth and the Earth would have melted. So using these conservative figures, this would make the sun twice its present radius. And it's, remember how big it is? I don't remember the figure, but it's big. It would be twice as big as it is if you only go back one million years ago. Be twice its size. If you go back 210 million years ago, the sun would have actually touched the earth. What do you think that would have done to the earth? That's only 210 million years, ladies. How old do they say the earth is? 4.5 billion. It's impossible, even using a very, very conservative rate of shrinkage for the sun. Also, they have shown, you know, the evolutionists like to say, well, we know that it takes millions of years and billions of years, perhaps, for coal, C-O-A-L, to form from vegetation, as likewise true for oil and gas. However, they have found that that is not true at all, and wood can be converted into coal, vegetation can be converted into coal in a few hours, they have found by experimentation. Also, petroleum, you know, if you get the right pressure um, and the right temperature in there, you can, you can create coal in a few hours and you can create a very good grade of petroleum in as few as 20 minutes. Now, creationists such as myself, we believe that all the coal and the oil and the gas and all those sort of things were very rapidly created at the time of when? The Great Flood. All, everything that was necessary to create coal and oil and gas um, was there at the flood with all the great pressure and the heat and, and the, the, um, the very turbulent waters. Everything was just crushed and instantly formed into coal. Actually, they have found um, human skeletons and human artifacts, even such things as very elaborate necklaces made by humans, are found in coal deposits. And evolutionists would tell us that coal had to be formed many, many millions of years before humans ever came on the scene. And yet the fossil record shows us otherwise. Another process which offers very convincing proof for a relatively young Earth, Earth is this of population growth. And I'll stop with this one. This will be the last one. Okay? Evolutionists assume that people have been on the Earth for at least one million years, whereas creationists believe that man has only been in existence for about 6,000 years, according to the Bible. So the question to ask is, which teaching is better supported by the, the data which is available from population growth statistics? Some have said that the average world population growth rate over the centuries has been about 2%, that we're growing at about 2%. However, again, if we give the evolutionists the advantage, and if we only assume a growth rate of one half percent 
per year instead of 2%. Let's only take one-half percent, which is one-fourth of our present rate of growth. If we do that, it would only take 4,000 years to produce today's population. Now, this is allowing for ample room, using this one-half percent growth rate, it's allowing ample room for times when, of course, due to war and diseases, the population rates were below the normal average. This figure of 4,000 years to reach our current population of six fits perfectly well with the biblical record. Why? How? Because Genesis tells us that the entire earth's population, except for Noah and his family, was destroyed about 4,000 years ago in a worldwide flood. Dr. Henry Morris has calculated that it is statistically inconceivable that only 6 billion people could have resulted from some 1 million years of evolutionary history. If the population increased only at one half percent for one million years, do you know how many people would be alive on planet Earth today? We couldn't keep them here. There would be, picture this figure, 10 with 2,100 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that would be called. That's how many people would be here on Earth. Furthermore, there would be literally billions upon billions upon billions of bodies buried in the Earth. And the fact of the matter is, they're just not there. The bodies aren't there. So the creation model of human chronology offers by far the most reasonable figure regarding the age of mankind. And it is an age which perfectly, perfectly matches the Bible and the statistics. You can, with confidence, rely on your Bible. It is the truth.